0: Talk is about the ecology of compassion, the interrelationship of our inner world and our outer world. So, from what I hear and see, and probably from most of what you folks hear and see in the various communities that we are connected with, with the world at large, and in feeling our own hearts, there's a growing sense of urgency. In all of us, that's why we're here to help, to do what we can, to offer our gifts, no matter how insignificant we may seem them, they may seem to be to us sometimes, to be able to touch the world, which is increasing in complexity and speed, to be able to touch the world with simplicity, with slowing down, perhaps with more kindness. So equally as strong, there is also a, gr- a growing spiritual urgency to go within. Obviously, that's why we're all here, to go deep within to that place where there can be the simple recognition, the simple, wise, and hopefully compassionate acknowledgement of knowing that inner landscape So that in the knowing of that inner landscape, we can uh, relax around that. We can see that more clearly. We can develop uh, a non-reactivity to that place. So that before we begin projecting our reactivity out there in the world, we understand what's going on in ourselves. So to experience this is to have a clear view of how it actually is in our hearts, to come close to what's going on in our own hearts so that we can come close to what's going on in the world, in our communities, in our families. This takes a sobering honesty and at times an unflinching kind of courage to see what the underpinnings of our personality are? What are the habit patterns that push and pull us to think what we think, to say what we say, to do what we do? It can become very painful at times, of course, to open to all of this. A couple of years ago, I read in the Shambhala Sun, they had an article about Buddhist women. And this one was... uh, an article of this Asian woman, Agnes Al, and I was very inspired by her words. She talks about the unlayering of this pain. She says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. So it seems... In spite of how difficult it is for all of us, this is what brings us here. This is our common uh, uh, underpinning, in a way, something deep that we all get in touch with. We all want, in this wholesome, wanting kind of way, to experience this vividness of a life that's not filtered with greed, hatred, or delusion. But in this process, we discover, uh, in opening to all of that, the habitual forces of the mind and heart that aren't that easy to open to. We discover what the habitual forces are that lead to suffering, that lead to pain, that lead to disharmony. Each one of us brings this into the world, and so we have, as individuals, a contributing effect of this. This inner terrain has a great effect on this outer terrain. So we also discover the inner habitual forces that create an ecology of peace, harmony, happiness. We see this in ourselves, and we see how this can affect our world on a community level, on a greater social level. And so the question we begin to ask ourselves as we go deeper into this process is, can we recognize the forces that lead to pain and relinquish them more quickly, more swiftly? Can we recognize them more clearly with greater balance, greater compassion? Can we recognize the forces that incline towards harmony, towards peace, Can we nourish those forces? So it's very possible to start being more clear, to start accepting these forces, to recognize them more swiftly, to relinquish or to nourish whichever way is onward leading for us. Without doing this kind of inner Process, this inner um, meditative spiritual work that we're doing, we can never hope to have a truthful effect on the world if we can't open truthfully to what's happening inside of ourselves. We can never hope to touch the world with kindness if we can't touch our own hearts with a kindness of opening, accepting, being therefore whatever is painful within ourselves. Transforming our hearts is a real possibility, and it sends powerful ripples in our family life, in our community, in the world. So this practice that we're all doing requires a tremendous tenderness, a tremendous compassion. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. And that can be huge. That can have a huge effect. Usually, compassion is thought of in terms of helping or saving others, facing the suffering out there, and we all together miss a very important first step when we think of compassion in these terms. Because compassion is that tender-hearted care and willingness to face what is happening in here, in our own hearts, in our own minds, to open to that. So oftentimes we come to practice and we think, this is really selfish, you know, I'm just looking at myself looking at what makes up this sense of self this mind and body continuum and this is all i do we do day after day and why can't why shouldn't i be out in the world you know serving food to the hungry helping the poor etc etc and oftentimes when i'm out there trying to do that in the world i see that i can't always do it with as tender a heart as I really would like to. And oftentimes it's because I haven't faced the um, so-called demons of my own heart so tenderly. So this is what we're all trying to do, looking at what keeps us bound on this cycle of suffering. The Buddha said, There is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, which keeps us bound on this cycle, and that is the noble truth of suffering. So the not opening to that keeps us bound in these habitual patterns that keep our thoughts, our words, and our actions in the same old ways that bring us to trouble. One of the frequent descriptions given in the texts about karuna, or sometimes we use this word, because it's the Pali word for compassion, karuna. One of the descriptions frequently given is, karuna makes the hearts of the good quiver when others are afflicted with sorrow. And so I go back to what Agnes Au said, when we feel the vividness of an unfiltered life. We open to life with that kind of vividness without any filters. It's said that the chief characteristic of karuna or compassion is the wish or the inclination for the removal of suffering or for the alleviation of suffering. And so indeed we see this in others and in ourselves. When we open to what's difficult, we want to help. But it's really important to take the action and the words in trying to help with a heart that's pure, free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. And it takes that kind of uh, clarity to be able to see whether compassion or what we think of is compassion is accompanied, accompanied by greed, hatred, or delusion, or Is it there with uh, unconditional love, generosity, clarity? The Buddha was said to have this great compassion. We hear sometimes of this Maha Karuna. And this great compassion is what all of the teachings write on in uh, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. When the Buddha opened to suffering, Truly, there was this quivering of the heart to relieve the suffering of others, and so he offered uh, the truth as he rediscovered it. This state of mind, this very high state of mind of Karuna, Maha Karuna from the Buddha, is what all of the teachings are riding on and which was the precursor for the Buddha to begin offering his 45 years plus of the dispensation of the sasana, of the dharma. Whenever I hear the teachings, no matter how simple or how profound they are, I always have a deep gratitude about how they're riding on this wave or on this current of the Mahakaruna of the Buddha. And it always brings me back to that time or that connection of the our root, so to speak, teacher. When I do my bows here in front of the Buddha, it's not bowing to this statue of the Buddha, but to the fact of the, the courage and compassion that one being had, which is part of myself and part of all beings, to open to what's difficult to bring some tenderness to it, and to do what we can when we know that our action and our words are accompanied by non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. It's said that there are two wings of the Dharma. One wing is the wing of wisdom, and the other wing is the wing of compassion. And it said that without both of these wings, the true Dharma would truly not fly. Sometimes we hear the teachings and they can be um, really, really profound, of course, and really reach us and make sense to us. But it doesn't penetrate our hearts unless there's compassion there with it. Sometimes it's um, very difficult to hear the teachings when it's a strong, fierce compassion. And um, sometimes I have taken in the teachings from teachers that have been very straightforward and direct with me. It's very hard, that kind of fierce compassion, to receive that. But compassion, whether it's tender or a kind of fierce compassion that really cuts away ignorance directly and swiftly... Compassion supports the growth of wisdom. It enables us to see the truth in its starkly naked manner, from starkly naked eyes and heart. And then that compassion becomes the natural outgrowth of wisdom. From that wisdom, we begin to see it makes sense to be loving and kind. It makes sense to connect. With one another uh, in tender ways. Our hearts quiver, of course, because we see the rawness of life. We see the helplessness, the vulnerability that we all are, that we're all part of, that we all face. Sometimes I like to hear the word vulnerability instead of suffering, because that's what can be most true for me in the moment. It may not be that I'm undergoing this very difficult kind of pain or suffering, but there is a sense of vulnerability, because things are always changing, as Carol spoke about last night. Nothing ever stays the same. There is no complete and permanent satisfaction to hold on to anywhere. And so that that vulnerability, which is another way of talking about dukkha, how that interrelates to the impermanence and the uncontrollability of life. It's very direct. But dukkha and vulnerability in a very straightforward sense, in a very simple sense, something that we can all relate to, can mean sickness, old age, and death. This is what we're all bound to. We're all born into all of this. This is part of dukkha. Recognizing and opening to that vulnerability is wisdom. Accepting that this is the way it is, is wisdom. And as we see more and more, It takes a tremendous amount of coming close to it with tenderness that is required. This life is all about, you know, change, getting older, the aches and pains that come with that, the disease that comes with that, and the death that comes with that. This is a kind of strange but truthful humor. Somebody said anonymously, Life is a sexually transmitted disease, which is always fatal. It's, it's easy to laugh about, of course, it's, it's because it's so true. But somehow, it's hard to face in our lives. In recent times, I've had to deal with a couple of challenging people in my life, in my community, where there was a great deal of harshness. And of course it activated some harshness, some ill will in myself that's still not, the fire is still going in that area, in my own heart, still working on that. And it's really painful to feel the hardness of my heart when I have to face the harshness or what I perceive as the harshness from other people. And at times, and I haven't done it successfully all the time, I'm still working on it, but at times when I've reflected on the fact that what connects us all, what connects me even to these people that uh, have activated some difficulty in my own heart, is this fact of old age sickness and death. And when I reflect on that truth, when I can come close to that truth, I feel more of a softness, more of a softening in my own heart, and it's not as painful to face. I find the pain that I face with regard to that issue is more around the hardness of my own heart rather than the harshness of those people that I must uh, have to deal with because it's part of my life. There are two constant and very powerful companions of Karuna, and those two powerful allies are equanimity and loving-kindness. And I want to talk about them in terms of the near and the far enemy, which I'll I'll explain. So the loving-kindness is one of the constant companions the allies of compassion. It's said that when loving kindness, this unconditional care that we turn towards suffering, when this unconditional care is turned towards pain, towards difficulty, towards um, stressful situations, towards suffering, when we can turn towards that with loving kindness, the aspect of compassion comes out of that. So the specifics of compassion come with bringing loving-kindness to dukkha, to suffering, whether it be a situation or in the outer world or whether it be an inner emotion or mental state within us. So that kind of caring is fearless. That fearlessness is unconditional. It says, I give my heart to this situation, no matter how painful it is. I give my heart to this situation unconditionally. And I'm sure in your own lives, you can remember certain times when that came forth with great spontaneity and came up just organically. I know for myself as a mother, I have faced many times when it's painful to raise them, to face the pain in my own heart of raising them alone for a certain portion of my life and uh, for facing the conditions that came to us once in a while that um, <clears throat> put us in some fear. And so there were times when, of course, my heart was beating so fast. And at the same time, I could feel the quivering of my heart beginning to open to what was painful in me so that it could open to what wasn't painful, what was painful outside, and be able to face it without shrinking back without um, not saying what I needed to say, but be able to say it with a fearlessness and a straightforwardness and oh, in a way that said, I'm not trying to hurt you, but I mean this. Leave us alone, or whatever I needed to do in order to protect our lives, uh, uh, their lives, or their well-being. I remember coming home one day when my three uh, children were on the roof, and they were running away from some uh, young man in the neighborhood who was said to be a bully in the neighborhood. And... um, my 4 year old she was 3 going on 4 was on the roof and the other children were there too and they were trying to get away from him i had so much anger come up because of that and i but i really needed to get the message across very clearly to him and to his parents this is enough i waited i got my children off the roof I told him to go home and I found out where he lived in the meantime. I got them all safe and sound. I got my senses together and I walked clear straight away to his house and uh, his parents opened the door and I really had to watch what was going on inside of me to, and let those parents know this is enough your boy cannot come near our house anymore and you know what he didn't <laughs> I remember when he got older I went to uh, get some gasoline and I recognized him and he was a teenager then and he went to put gasoline in the car those, that was one of those um, service stations that did that service and he saw me and the kids and he went back in and sent somebody back out <laughs> So it takes, it really takes um, a wherewithal, you know, to be with what's going on inside so you get the message across compassionately, clearly, just with a lot of balance and um, set the boundaries straight sometimes. So that caring for one's children, for, you know, seeing that 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 young boy didn't cause any more harm for himself in his life. That caring needs to be fearless. And it says, I give my care to this painful situation no matter what, unconditionally, with no regrets. We do what we can, we can. And we have no regrets because when we we have loving kindness and we have that kind of openness, knowing what's going on inside, facing the situation outside, we're we're able to look back on that and say, I did the right thing, as far as I know. So <clears throat> that kind of fearlessness where we don't have any regrets, where we're able to face the difficulties that come to us and see the beauty of what we did, uh, was brought out by this story from uh, about Roberto de de Vicenzo, a famous Argentine golfer. This um, comes from Jack Kornfield's book, Actually, on Forgiveness. And this person once won a tournament, golf tournament. After receiving the check and smiling for the cameras, he went to the clubhouse and was prepared to leave. He was walking alone to his car in the parking lot and was approached by a young woman She congratulated him for his victory and told him that she had a child that was seriously ill and was dying. De Vincenzo was touched by her story, took out a pen, and endorsed the check that he had just received over to her. And he said, make some good days for your baby. And he pressed the check into her hand. The next week he was having lunch at a country club when one of the officials came to his table and said, some of the guys were in the parking lot and said that this happened, that this young woman approached you and you gave her this check. And she said, that's right. And he said, well, I have news for you. She's a phony. She's not married. She has no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. You mean there is no baby who is dying? De Vincenzo said. And he said, the uh, official said, that's right. And De Vincenzo said, that's the best news I've heard all week. <laughs> so just to turn it around, you know, and, and see the beauty of that. Have no regrets. That kind of fearlessness. So in relationship to our own inner experiences of fear, to our own inner experiences of pain, whatever that is, betrayal, It's sometimes more challenging. It's hard enough, you know, to bring a kind of tenderness, a kind of soft, accepting, uh, fearless nature to the pain in the body, which we all do the best we can in uh, trying to open to. But sometimes, for me especially, it's very, very uh, challenging to bring it to the states of mind. That are sometimes even hard to acknowledge are there, I had a experience um, last year, I think it was, or maybe early this year. I have two uh, granddaughters that live on Maui where Steve and I live, other grandchildren, but these two, uh, their names are Emily, and she's six years old, and Lauren, and Lauren is four. And so they were both um, being pulled by Steve. He was taking them in their wagon around the block, and they fell over. And the little one, Lauren, the 4-year-old, had a big bruise on her knee. And so she came in. And so the other one, Emily, came in, and she, she was really quiet. She didn't have any body bruises, but she was just really quiet and sort of held in in retrospect. I noticed that. But at the time, I didn't notice. And so Lauren was really just wailing about her knee, especially when she saw her mom and dad. She was wailing about her knee, and she was saying, it hurts, it hurts, get the ice, get the ice. And so, you know, kiss the owie, kiss the owie, and all that. And so everyone was centered around her and giving her, you know, the compassionate touches and the kisses on the owie and all of that. And so Emily, little Emily, was over in the corner, and she started crying. And she said, Grandma Kamala, I hurt too. And I said, where, where? And she pointed to her heart. She said, here, in my heart. She was crying. And I said, well, what happened? A little bit she was jealous, you know, a little bit she was jealous of all the attention. But also she was afraid. And she just realized it. She said, "It hurts in my heart, Grandma." And I was really happy to hear that she was able to do that. That she was able to really—and I didn't teach her that. I don't talk dharma to the kids about anything. You know, they, I'm already known for being the dharma mama, so I just keep my mouth shut. So she just—she just came out with that on her own. So mental pain, fear, you know, just learning how to acknowledge that, to come close to that, takes a tremendous amount of tenderness. We often have to remind ourselves to soften around this tangle of mental and physical pain and to be able sometimes to see the difference See, the pain in the body is different from pain in the heart. Of course, the pain in the body is picked up mentally. It's deciphered mentally. But we still know the difference. One time I asked Manindraji, uh, one of our teachers, why does it hurt so much? I found this question in one of my early journals. And the answer, he said, he said, it hurts because your heart is disentangling. The tangle is disentangling. The tangle of what makes up this body-mind continuum. What are the component parts of it? Only by bringing this softness, this tenderness, can we come close. Otherwise, we push it away. We turn away. We cover it up. So this tangle is disentangling. And so someone asked the Buddha this as well. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya the Connected Discourses. A tangle inside, a tangle outside. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you, O Gautama, who can disentangle this tangle? And the Blessed One answered, one established in virtue, one wise, developing the mind with wisdom, one who is ardent and discreet, this one, can disentangle the tangle. And so this is what we're doing. When, as we're here, through this process that we're going through, disentangling this tangle, understanding through compassion, through coming close to this tangle of suffering, this tangle of dukkha, what makes up the this body-mind continuum, the component parts of it, Dismantling this delusion, this ignorance of a sense of self. So oftentimes it's important to bring in a very conscientious and conscious, intentional way some tenderness, some loving kindness to the physical pain, to the mental heart pain. One time a person described dukkha as heart pain. I thought how true that is. And we use this phrase, as Sally introduced uh, last week, I care about this pain, or may I open to this pain. But in that uh, phrase, we have to remember to put the emphasis on the care part, not on the pain part. Otherwise, we're wallowing in the pain. And this is what we don't want to do. We don't want to get lost in the pain. We don't want to be embittered by it. We don't want to drown in it, to be engulfed in it. It's important to have this ability to be close enough to it, to see the vividness of it, to see the clarity of what's going on there. Not in a psychological way, but to see what's happening with it, the, the um, way that it changes. This is a way that we can bring a kind of balance to it. The indirect enemy of compassion is an unhealthy grief, not the healthy kind where we open moment to moment and bit by bit to, Whatever the the pain is that we're holding in our heart, but an unhealthy kind where we're drowning in it, where there might be pity for oneself, pity for another, we get so bogged down in what the painful conditions of our life that it can become our identity. I remember once again with um, Manindraji when. He was doing one of those fear, fear, fierce, compassionate, uh, giving me one of those fierce, compassionate talks. Um, there had been quite a bit of time had passed. I, I had been a single mother, and now I wasn't a single mother. I was uh, married to someone, a very, very good man who raised my three children that I had been a single parent with. For a long time, he helped me raise him, and I have so much respect and gratitude for him. This is not Steve, by the way, just keep it all straight and um, <laughs> that was my husband um, so now life was okay. <laughs> Steve is my husband. So that life was okay now. You know, things were going along fine. We were well supported in, in many different ways. And um, I was uh, going down, down this um, well, road, Haleakala Highway, and taking Manindra and actually someone else, um, another teacher, Krishnaji, to see a site on Maui. And we were going along and I was telling him about how it was in the past. And, um, you know, and it wasn't like that anymore, but I was kind of locked in still to the past. And he just fearlessly and fiercely, just with great compassion, came at me and he said, Stop it. And it really just stopped it. You know, it really just cut That identity I had with my past. And I know we can't always do it like that all the time. Sometimes it it takes its own time. And I'm not saying that this is for everyone, but I had, you know, I had gone on and on for years leading into life with my wounds that way. And it took that kind of fierce compassion in order to wake up and see vividly what was going on because that can become a habit pattern that everything is based around. As William Stafford says, these wounds, he he didn't say those words, but these are his words about those wounds, they turn into pearls, they take on a luster, they accumulate as decorations, badges, earrings, end of quote. A solid sense of self. In other words, an identity around our suffering, what, however whatever the specifics are around that. So in disentangling the tangle, we must be careful about this. We must bring a kind of tenderness and caring to our moment to moment experience and not continually, you know, hook up all the dots and create a solid sense of self around that. Admittedly, we have to put it out there and talk about it sometimes. But to create this kind of monolith around our past, around our suffering, is not helpful at all in the disentangling of this tangle. So if we simply stay present, follow the instructions, just know what's happening moment to moment with uh, the mind, with the body, with our emotions. We're not liable to do this. On the level of dealing with the world, we can be overcome with grief and pity and cannot be uh, effective in dealing with the world. There's an ancient story about someone sinking in quicksand and out of pity or overwhelming grief, that person jumps into the quicksand to save the other person. And this is all about wallowing in grief and sorrow, with, with the world, or with that other person, and we can't really help then. So that's about loving kindness, and um, the the near enemy, which is called pity or that unhealthy kind of grief. The other powerful constant companion of genuine compassion is equanimity, and that's a sense of balance. That's a sense of balance with spaciousness so that it allows a unwavering, stable, clear view of what is going on. It's like standing next to a raging a river full of a lot of debris, full of a lot of what, what can be difficult in our mind and our body, and feeling very stable, the, the stability and the spaciousness and the balance of opening to whatever is going on, whatever is passing through, and not jumping in that river. It's said that equanimity is what allows the action of compassion to be powerfully effective. Otherwise, we're ineffective when we're with the opposite of equ- equanimity, which is reactivity, when we're reacting to what's going on in the world with attachment, some attachment to some ideal of how we think it should be in the world or some attachment to um, you know, a goal that we have to carry out. This reactivity can be also aversion to what's going on in the world, maybe a closer world like our family, our community, and having so much aversion that we think we're going out there and uh, offering acts of compassion or words of compassion, but it's so well seen, it's so uh, seen so clearly from others that there's aversion there, and so we aren't so effective in that way. His holiness, the Dalai Lama, is a shining example of how one can be under extreme conditions. When we watch him, usually he remains calm and balanced. And he says that he tries to act when he knows that there's no aversion or no attachment to his goal there. Although he does say, and I, I admit how how much I respect him for being truthful. That sometimes there is there ill will. I, uh, I read an interview of him just recently where he talked about even having jealousy sometimes. Um, so here's something that he said about what happened. Um, when the Tibetans reacted by attacking the police, security forces, and innocent civilians. This made me very sad, he said. It would be much more constructive if people tried to understand their supposed enemy. Learning to be compassionate is much more useful than merely picking up a stone and throwing it at the object of one's anger, the more so when the provocation is extreme. For it is under the greatest adversity that there exists the greatest potential for the cultivation of good, both for oneself and for others. If not for equanimity, the far enemy of compassion, which is cruelty, would be more active. Cruelty is striking out. It's pushing away because maybe we have this strong-held attachment to our point of view or to our goal or to our ideal of how we think it should be, or because we have this aversion to how things are. This is how cruelty uh, gets manifested in, uh, which is the opposite, the direct opposite of compassion. It's hard to see sometimes, the, the, these factors in ourselves, because they can be covered up by some self-justification, for some with some righteous indignation. So we have to be really careful about seeing even these qualities, this self-righteousness, um, that we might have around something, resentment, judging, criticizing. This all happens within ourselves, and this is a cruelty to ourselves when it happens. When we become aware of it, there's a poss- with compassion, there's a possibility that this can be liberated. I read a story recently about the actress Susan St. James who lost her 14-year-old son in a plane crash. And after some time of anguish and anxiety around all of this, rage, she soon had some compassion for what happened. She forgave everyone and everything that might have been responsible for this plane crash, whereas she held that rage for a long time. And there was this hard-earned observation that, I will quote her. Resentment, she said, is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. So we often don't realize how this bitterness, this resentment um, can be a poison to us. And so it's opening to this, uh, this cruelty to ourselves, which is, one of the most important things we can do with compassion, opening to that cruelty that we constantly inflict on ourselves. With equanimity, there is not the reactivity, which is the opposite, the reactivity towards whatever is painful. And there's this ability to just open to it with a spacious, non-reactive mind. So cruelty doesn't have to be there. Cruelty towards ourselves, cruelty towards others. So the combination of this loving kindness and equanimity supports and allows compassion to fully blossom and to be active with ourselves and with the world so that there is this genuineness of Compassion that comes out, not tinged with cruelty, not um, a mind or heart wallowing in the pain of ourselves or the world. There's a tenderness and caring that can come to the despair of our own hearts and thereby able to come to the despair of the world more fearlessly, with more balance, without any veneer, of delusion. So I'd like to end with um, an excerpt from a poem of David White and this is from Self Portrait his poem called Self Portrait It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods I want to know if you know despair and can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in this world with its harsh need to change you. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequences of love. So let's sit for a few moments and let the words and the concepts dissolve. May our love and compassion support us in opening to whatever is difficult in ourselves and outside of ourselves.